Let's take our Bibles. Let's look to Acts chapter number 12 tonight and see what the Lord has for us as we move on to the next part of this study, verse by verse through the book of Acts. And I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Last Sunday night, we went through the first 16 verses of Acts chapter number 12. Now, what I like to do when we kind of move into this on Sunday night is just to, to review at least the chapter we're in, at least where we're at in the chapter. And so the first 16 verses of this chapter, uh, we saw that the church had already, has already, before we got to chapter number 12, they've already weathered uh, some, some very serious storms of persecution. This early church has already had to deal with a lot. Remember, the first deacon, uh, one of the first deacons, Stephen, was, has already been stoned to death in the book of Acts. There's, there's been times already where, they, where they've been placed into prison and, and been persecuted for what they're doing for the Lord. And so they've already weathered a great deal of storms and great deals of persecution. And so because the, uh, the church is multiplying, uh, because they're growing, because they're seeing God do great and mighty things, the devil wants to stop that growth. And he wants to discourage and so the Bible tells us he sends persecution here again in chapter number 12. So we gave three thoughts last Sunday night. Uh, we said thought number one was the persecution of the church. And we saw that in the first four verses. So from verse one to verse number four, what do we see in those first two verses? Well, we saw that Herod had already killed James. So he killed James, the brother of John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee or the sons of thunder. He's already killed James. And then from verse one to verse number four, the Bible tells us he arrests Peter. He is trying to get to the leaders of the church. And he figures that if he can get to them, he can discourage and he can defeat and he can destroy the growth and multiplication of the local church there and the early church that we're reading about. And so a great deal of persecution takes place. But then, number two, we talked about the prayer of the church. And we saw that in verse number five. There was a corporate prayer meeting. They met at a house, didn't they? And they began to pray without ceasing for God to rescue Peter and so we said a couple things last Sunday night by, by means of that. We, we talked about how that a mighty church is a praying church. And we want to be a mighty church. And in order to be a mighty church, we need to be a praying church. And so let's learn the importance of prayer. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight as well as we touch on verse number 17 in just a moment. But in verse number 5, we talked about the prayer of the church. By the way, one of the crucial ingredients of a church is to have prayer. We talked about that from Acts chapter 2 where it talked about the things that the early church were doing. There was, let's see, there was doctrine, that's teaching and preaching, uh, breaking of bread, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, that's, that's important. Fellowship, that's important. I love times of fellowship. Fellowship's a, a vital thing, that's a vital ingredient. But prayer was found in Acts chapter 2 as well. Those vital, important ingredients of the local church. And so we saw the persecution of the church, then we saw the prayer of the church, and then we saw the power of the church. And that was from verse 6 through verse number 16. We saw that power came from God. It wasn't anything they could boast about themselves now when Peter was rescued and when Peter was delivered. It wasn't anything that they could boast of on their own, but it was the power of God because of their prayer. And again, let's be a mighty church because we are a praying church and then let's see God's power in our lives because we're bringing things to Him. And so we said this, when the church prays, power is a result of that. Uh, there's, there's power that comes when a church prays. So this week, I was putting together, I was putting one of, one of, the, one of the things that I was doing in my office this week, church, one of the 
things that I do in my office is I always put up our sermons on, on our church's website so that if somebody would just uh, care to listen to one of the messages, they could get that off of their website. And then also, you probably see it on our slides here, we also put our messages on a preaching podcast. So somebody could go to a podcast, and we've found that uh, there, there are, are, are sermons that are on our podcast are, are regularly being listened to. And so that's another avenue for us to be able to get the gospel out to someone. And so then I was, as I was putting this on, I thought, I've got to come up with a, with, with a title uh, to be able to put on uh, our, our website and to put on the podcast for the, the message that I preached last Sunday night. And here was the title I came up with. I, I, I found this to be a tongue twister, but it, it, it applied to the message last week. The title that I gave for that sermon last week was Powerful pa- Prayer, excuse me, see it's a tongue twister. Powerful Prayer Provides Prison Protection. There we go. Powerful Prayer Provided Prison Protection. And so because of the prayer of God's people... Uh, Peter was protected, and Peter was brought out of prison. And so we're going to get to verse number 17 tonight. And so we're in Acts chapter 12 and verse number 17. And what we're noticing as we've moved into Acts chapter number 12, we're noticing a cycle that is, being taken, that is taking place here in the early church. And all of these words that are in this cycle start with the letter P as well. So I'm really going to be tongue-tied here soon. But the cycle that's happening in the early church is we're seeing preaching taking place. And as a result of the preaching, then comes the persecution. They don't like the message of God. And so the, 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 the people that are preaching the word of God, they begin to persecute them. So preaching is then followed by persecution, but persecution is always followed by prayer. And then prayer is always followed by power. And did you notice we're seeing that throughout the book of Acts, but did you notice we're seeing it in Acts chapter 12 here? Because of preaching that has taken place, Herod stirs up persecution. And then as a result of persecution, the people of God get together and they begin to pray. And then as a result of their prayer, God in his powerful way sends protection and relief and rescue to his man Peter there who's in prison. So what we found in the early part of Acts chapter 12, because we're going to pick up in verse number 17 tonight, what we found is that whatever the devil does to try to stop God's program, it never really stops it. It continues going forward, doesn't it? So whatever the devil tries to do, and as a matter of fact, that could take place, that could be an application for you in your personal life as well. Whatever you personally are going to face that the devil's going to try to use to get you to stop, He'll never be able to truly stop you as you keep Christ close to you. You're always going to be able to go forward for the Lord. Uh, That would apply to our families as well. Oh, let's not let the devil stop us. Whatever strategy he comes up with to try to stop the, the work of the Lord in our lives, let's not let him stop us. Let's go on forward for the Lord. And may we apply that in our church as well. Oh, let's not let the devil discourage us and defeat us and try to stop us. Let's go on forward for the Lord. And that's what we're going to notice here in Acts chapter number 12, starting in verse number 17. And what I want us to see tonight is I want us to notice three thoughts. And we're going to break this into the verses that are going to finish this uh, this chapter for us tonight. I want us to see some ways in which God works at the end of this chapter here. And by the way, the ways that we're going to see God working is the same ways that he will work in your life as well if you allow him to do that. One of the things we're going to talk about is the same thing that we mentioned last Sunday evening. One of the ways that God works, number one, I want us to notice this tonight, God works through prayer. 
God works through prayer. We've said it this way before. Prayer changes things, doesn't it? And it truly does. Prayer changes things. And I say this about prayer. Prayer moves the hand of God. And so if we're going to spend time praying and we're going to spend time talking to God, we're going to get to see God work because prayer truly does work and prayer changes things and prayer moves the hands of God. And so notice verse number 17, if you would. We're in Acts chapter 12 and verse number 17. But he, now again, let's get ourselves caught up. They've been praying in this house. Peter is rescued and he comes and he knocks on the door, doesn't he? The Bible says this servant girl comes up to the door. She's so amazed by the fact that she's seeing Peter that she turns around and she begins to deliver the message that he's standing at the door knocking to those that are praying. And they are a little bit doubtful, aren't they? About whether Peter is truly at the door. Because remember now, this is the night before. He's supposed to stand before the trial. And certainly, as we're reading through what's happened already to James, certainly Herod's going to work to take the life of Peter. I mean, that's what he's desiring to do. And so really at the last minute, at the last moment, God comes through. And here he's standing at the door. Well, they finally open the door. And the Bible tells in verse number 17, notice this, but he beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace. So he tries to quiet them down. And I'd imagine at that particular moment, he probably needed to quiet them down because they were probably overjoyed at the fact that here's Peter standing in front of us. And at the last moment, God has delivered him. He has rescued him. He saw him through the problem that he had. Look, the Bible says he beckons with his hand. And notice what it says in verse number 17. He declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Now, I want us to notice this in verse number 17 that Peter recounts to those people that are there at that house that have been gathering praying. He, rec he recounts to them how God has answered their prayers. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us word for word what he says, but you can almost picture him talking about how he was in prison. Now, he knew that he was awaiting that trial and then how the angel came and he got up and he was able to be rescued from those chains that held him down and the guards that were all around him. And then he made it through the, the first section of that prison and made it out to a place of freedom so that he could come to the house where they were gathered there for prayer. He recounts this whole entire story to them. Let's uh, just for a moment uh, journey through a few verses in the Bible and see what the Bible reminds us of when it comes to this subject of prayer and how that prayer is a one of the ways in which God works in our life. Would you look with me, if you would, at John chapter 15? John chapter 15, and notice what the Bible says in verse number 7. So we're in John chapter 15 and verse number 7. We're going to see how prayer works. Look at John chapter 15 and verse number 7. It says, If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Can you imagine as they're praying there? As they're seeking God's hand of protection on the life of Peter. And then as they're praying, as they're talking to the Lord, he comes through. And what they, the prayer that they need answered is what takes place as they're praying and they're talking to the Lord. Look with me if you would at 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, and I want you to look at chapter number 3. So 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3. And look with, you, with me, if you would, at verse number 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 1. It says this, Finally, brethren, pray for us. Here's Paul as he speaks to the church of Thessalonica. And he says to them, pray for us. Now not, notice this. That the word of the Lord may have free course 
Okay, so Peter, excuse me, Paul here, and as he speaks to the church of Thessalonica, he's giving them some specific prayer requests, isn't he? He's saying, would you, would you pray along with us that the word of God would be unhindered? That's a good prayer request, isn't it? That the word of God would be unhindered. Now again, I mentioned this already tonight, but my, it just thrills my heart that for so many years now, we've been able to be in the public schools. Now the public schools would be a place where we would say, well, it seems like the gospel would be hindered in the school. But because of many prayers... The gospel's unhindered in the public schools to this point, and we're able to go in there, and we're able to have the Bible clubs. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, praying that the gospel be unhindered, that it would have free course, and then notice this, and be glorified even as it is with you, that we can see God not only that he is glorified, but that the word of God as it is preached, it is effective in the hearts and the lives of those who hear it so that they can come to know Christ as their Savior. Oh, that we would pray for these things. And then what does God say he'll do? If we're praying, he'll answer those requests. Look with me, if you would, at the book of James. James chapter number 5. And I want us to look at verse number 16. James chapter 5 and verse number 16. Now, if you were with us on Wednesday night, you know that we went to James chapter number 5 because we are talking, we're moving into, in our Old Testament Bible journey, we're moving into this, the life of uh, the prophet uh, uh, Elijah. And the Bible talks in James chapter 5 of the prayer of Elijah. Would you look at James chapter 5 and verse 16? It says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, look at this, availeth much. God uses prayer to uh, change things. And one of the ways that God works is through prayer. So let's again be a praying church as we get to see and learn of the power of God as we're praying. By the way, that's exactly what the early church is learning. I think you'd agree with me there. They are learning that as we pray, powerful things can take place. We're praying, we're talking to God on behalf of Peter, and God has rescued Peter. That church is learning the power of prayer. Would you, would you consider with me a thought tonight as we're reading through? Think about, think about the leaders of the early church. The leaders of the early church were the same men who had been taught to pray by whom? They had been taught to pray by Jesus. Remember when they said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And what did he do with those apostles that followed closely to him. The Bible tells us he took that passage of scripture there after they said those words to him, Lord, teach us to pray, and he taught his disciples to pray. Those disciples are now the leaders. Those apostles are now the leaders in the early church. These are men that are learning about the power of prayer because they've been taught how to pray by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ while he was here on earth. They had developed in their life a prayer habit. Can I encourage you to do that in your life tonight? Can I encourage you to develop in your life a prayer habit? You say, what do you mean by that? Just make it a habit that everything you go through in life, you take it to the Lord in prayer. Just take it to the Lord in prayer. And think about that song as the hymn writer wrote, oh, what grief we often carry just because we don't take things to God in prayer. May we have a prayer habit in our lives where we will take things to God in prayer 
so that he can answer and meet the needs that we have. So what is one way that God works? In this passage of Scripture, one way that he works is through prayer. But the second thing I want us to notice is that this tonight. God works in spite of the enemies of God. Number two tonight, God works in spite of the enemies of God. Now some might look at passages of Scripture like this and they may say, look at the, look at the enemy that's surrounding the early church here. Herod who's wanting to do away with the early church leaders. But God is able to work in spite of the enemies of God. Look with me if you would at verse number 18 in our Bibles here tonight. Acts chapter 12. And notice verse number 18 if you would. Now as soon as it was day. Alright, so now we're back to this passage of Scripture with Peter. As soon as it was day, what do you think they're going to they're gonna do when it gets to be daytime? They're going to wonder where in the world is Peter, right? I mean, this is the man who's in prison. We're awaiting this trial that he's going to face, and now all of a sudden he's nowhere to be found. So look at what happens in verse number 18. Now, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. Now, let's, let's look at verse 19 because this begins to address the enemy of God, Herod, here. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. Now we'll pause there just for a moment. You'll notice that he examines the keepers of the prison or he examines the guards, but he doesn't, and he puts them to death, commands to put them to death, but he doesn't make any steps to further search for Peter, does he? It's kind of confusing. Here's this man that we can't find. We're looking all over for him. We can't locate him, so I'm examining the, the guards. The guards can't come up with a story that'll save their life, so he's commanding that they would be put to death. And by the way, that was a common thing, wasn't it? It was, it was common for guards to be held responsible for prisoners that were in their keeping. So if you were to be watching prisoners and those prisoners got away... If you were the guard of those prisoners, you had to be held responsible for them and, and, and for their whereabouts. Matter of fact, we haven't got there yet, but eventually we'll get to Acts chapter 16. You remember what happens in Acts chapter 16? Uh, Peter, or excuse me, Paul and Silas there in prison in, in, in Philippi. And the Bible tells us that uh, God, again, in his power, uh, allows those prisoners to be freed. And the, remember, you remember the, the one guard, he's, he's about to take his life, isn't he? And so he draws his sword and would have killed himself. The Bible says in Acts chapter 16, well, why is he going to kill himself? Because he realizes that because these prisoners are under my watch and I'm going to allow them to get away, I'm going to lose my life anyway. And you remember the end of that story, gloriously God saves that man, doesn't he? And uh, Paul and Silas stop him from taking his life. And they say, all the prisoners are here, which, by the way, was a miraculous thing from God as well, that all those prisoners would still be there. And he asked that question, what must I do to be saved? And we'll get to that passage of Scripture later. But I'm saying that to say that this was a common thing, to take the lives of the guards. And so in his anger, he's responding just like a heathen king would. I'm angry that Peter got away. He's commanded that the lives of those guards would be taken away. But can I say this? God is in control. We're talking about God working here. God is working in spite of the enemies of God. God is in control even over his enemies. Sometimes we might look at things that are going on around us and we may say it looks like, it looks like that, th those individuals that are doing that which they shouldn't do, it almost seems like they're winning. 
You know, what's going on around us here? It seems as if God doesn't have control of all this, but God has control even over his enemies, doesn't he? Look with me, if you would, at a passage of Scripture that I think you'll find unique. If you would, look at Psalm 2, if you would. Way back to the Old Testament of the book of Psalm, and I want us to look at Psalm 2, and I want us to notice the first few verses here in Psalm 2. And while I'm reading this, would you concentrate on what the Bible is saying about God's control even over his enemies? Look at what it says in Psalm 2 and verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Sometimes we ask that question. Why does it seem like the heathen is raging around us? Why does it seem like they're getting away with things? Why does it seem like God doesn't have control over all of that? Oh, he does. Look at verse 2 if you would. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And it looks like people are fighting against God and it looks as if they're prevailing. And notice the end of verse number 2. And against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Notice verse 4. He that setteth, sitteth excuse me, in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. What is the Bible telling us there? God's in control, isn't he? And he's in control even in spite of enemies that are around him. Would you look back to the chapter of Scripture we were at there? Acts chapter 12. Look at the end of verse number 19 if you would. So... Herod is acting like a heathen king would. He's taken the lives. He's commanded to take the lives of the guards. He can't find Peter. And then notice what the Bible tells us happens next. Look at the end of verse number 19. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. Now you'll notice that he moves from, Herod moves from where he's at and he departs and he goes to Caesarea. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that Herod has departed, but it tells us that God has saved Peter, hasn't he? Peter was rescued. God has protected Peter. And so God works in spite of the enemies of God. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28. I know you've heard this passage of scripture, I'm sure, before. And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God... To them who are the called according to his purpose. We know that all things work together for good. Not, the Bible never says that all things are good. But all things have a way of working together for good. Why is that? Because God is in control. And in this situation here, God worked out everything for good. Would you take your Bible quickly and look to Isaiah 54 with me. Isaiah 54 and notice once you found Isaiah 54, would you look down at verse number 17? Isaiah chapter 54, and look at verse number 17. It says these words, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. So again, yes, it might look like the enemies are in control, but God says they will not prosper. Look at verse 17. And every tongue that shall rise against thee to judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now these verses encourage us tonight because it lets us know that even though there are enemies around us, God is in control and he will take care of those that are around us that decide or desire to do us harm. Now the last question I want to ask you at this point tonight is this, because this will get us thinking here tonight. And I'm going to have you turn to a passage of scripture that I think will answer this tonight. Why is it then 
okay, if God chose to save Peter, this is the question we would, we would, we would present uh, tonight. If God chose to save Peter, then why didn't he cho choose to save James? Here's James, the Bible tells us at the start of Acts chapter 12, and he is killed by, by Herod, correct? James is killed. Peter's placed into prison. They start play, praying for Peter, and Peter is protected, and Peter is gloriously rescued. In spite of, remember, God works as people pray, and then God works in spite of the enemies of God around us. So the question would be tonight, well, why did God choose to save Peter, but he didn't choose to save James? Do you think we're going to have the answer to that down here on earth? No. But I think we have a scripture that speaks to it. Would you look at Isaiah 55 for a moment? Isaiah 55, and look with me, if you would, at verse number 8. Isaiah 55 and verse number 8. What I'm trying to say through all of this is this. We may not always have the answers down here on earth as to the way God works, but we know He's in control. We know He makes no mistakes. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, as for God, His way is perfect. He makes no mistakes, right? So what does the Bible say in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse number 8? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. We may not understand everything we go through, but we know that God is working in spite of the enemies around. We don't know why God chose to save Peter and why he chose for James to be killed because his thoughts are higher than mine. His ways are higher than mine. I may not understand that until I get to heaven. I may not have the answer for that. Look at verse number 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. I know Brother, uh, Brother Fry, just yesterday, Brother Fry at the youth conference told us a story that really speaks to what we just read there in Isaiah chapter 55. He talked about how that before he, uh, before he got saved, he said he had a brother that was seven years old and his brother died. He said uh, when, when the funeral service was going on, my brother was laid out there in the casket. He said my parents weren't saved. And he said that they came to the service there and he said there was an older lady that came up to us while the funeral was going on. And he said this older lady came up to us and said, I want to let you know that your son has been coming to my Sunday school class the last several, I guess, months or weeks. And he, she, she said to the parents now, this is Pastor Fry over in Frederick, his, his parents, when he, was, when he was a young boy, he, he said that the Sunday school teacher said uh, that at the end of my Sunday school class every week, I always ask the children, or I always tell the children, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to stay afterwards and sit in your seat while everybody else is dismissed, and I'll talk to you, and I'll let you know how you can trust Christ as your Savior based upon the Bible and what God's Word says. And Pastor Fry said that the Sunday school teacher said to us while we were at the funeral, standing in front of the body of my brother, the Sunday school teacher said to my parents, I want to let you know that a few weeks ago your son did that. He stayed after church as a seven-year-old boy. They didn't even know this had happened, it sounded like, in the testimony. He stayed afterwards and he trusted Jesus as a Savior. Well, he said years down the road, he, he got saved. He trusted Christ as his Savior and he had a real burden for his mother. And he said, finally, his mother got saved. He said, I had a chance to, after, after preaching, as a young man, he preached at a, at a service and his mother came. 
And he said that she uh, talked to him afterwards about how she needed to be saved and she got saved. And he said the statement that she made after she trusted Christ as her Savior, she prayed, she asked the Lord to be her Savior, and she looked up from bowing her head and praying and said, now I'm going to get to see my son in heaven. I'm going to get to see him again. And Pastor Frank said, I believe that was God's way of saying, that's why I took your brother. You didn't understand it all at that time. As a seven-year-old, why your brother would die and go into eternity. But I took your brother so that down the road, your mom would be able to know that the only way I'm going to be able to get to see him again is if I trust Christ as my Savior. And then I'll be gloriously re reunited with him. You know, our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Our ways are not God's ways. And down the road, sometimes we may know it a little bit better. Maybe down the road, we sang that song this morning, farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. We might not right now. And so we might ask, ask ourselves that question. Well, why would God choose to keep James, or excuse me, to, to, to keep Peter and protect him, but that James would be killed? God understands it all, doesn't he? One thing I know from this passage of Scripture is that God works. And God works when we pray. And God works in spite of our enemies. But the third thing I want us to notice is this tonight. As we close the passage of Scripture, we'll close the book of, or the 12th chapter of Acts tonight. I want us to notice the third thing tonight. God works as we pray. God works in spite of the enemies of God. Don't let the enemies of God discourage you tonight. Because God works and he's in control. Number three, God works in spite of of the pride of man. God works in spite of the pride of man. You say, what are you talking about? Are we going to see man's pride in this passage of Scripture? Notice what happened with King Herod. Now remember the Bible tells us he goes to Caesarea. So he departs from where he's at. He goes to Caesarea. God has rescued Peter. Peter is now safe. Notice what the Bible says starting in verse number 20, back in Acts chapter 12 now. Verse number 20. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace. Now notice why they desire peace. Because their country was nourished by the king's country. So what is happening here in verse number 20? Well, there is a dispute that needs to be settled and that dispute is between Herod and these two cities that are mentioned here in verse number 20. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the dispute is all about, but there's a dispute that needs to be settled. And it's between Herod and these two cities of Tyre and Sidon. Well, the Bible tells us that those cities come together and they send some representatives to make peace. We want to make peace with King Herod. Now, why do we need to make peace with King Herod? Because that's how we receive our nourishment. That's how we're eaten, right? By the way, that would be a good reason to make peace, wouldn't it? We're going to make peace so that we can get some food. And so the Bible says they send a representative because they're dependent upon the food of King Herod. And the Bible tells in verse number 20 that they win the support of a man who is the chamberlain of King Herod. His name is Blastus. We read it there in the verse, in verse number 20. And so as a result of that, an appointment with King Herod is granted. So now we're going to 
be able to try to settle this dispute because we found some peace with his chamberlain, whose name is Blastus, and we're going to be able to set up an appointment, set up a time in which we're going to get to meet with Herod and hopefully settle this dispute. Well, let's move to verse 21. And upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal, royal excuse me, apparel. So now he's got his kingly apparel on. Now picture all of this. He's got his kingly apparel on, and he's sitting upon his throne. It says, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. So the Bible tells us in verse number 21 that he begins to make a speech to them, but he failed to do something. He failed to do something in this speech. Would you look at verse number 22 with me? The Bible says, and the people gave a shout, saying, it is the voice of a god... And not of a man. Now what's happening here in verse number 22? Herod fails to give glory to God. He takes the glory for himself. And as a result of taking the glory for himself in his heart of pride, the Bible tells us that God punishes him for his pride. Here's what we want to notice tonight. We want to notice that God works in spite of the pride of man. You know, God's going to work in the hearts and lives of those that are his children. And he's going to work in spite of the pride of man around. But here's what God wants to do. God wants to work in our hearts as we are humble before him. That's the way he wants to work. The Bible says that Herod has to receive a punishment. Look at verse number 23. And by the way, this is a very serious punishment he faces. Immediately... The angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Notice the Bible says there's a punishment that takes place because he, he refuses to give God the glory and he took the glory for himself. Anything that we accomplish ought to all be for the glory of God, shouldn't it? We said this morning there is a purpose behind talents and spiritual gifts that God gives to us. If he gives us talents and he gives us spiritual gifts, there's a purpose behind it all. And remember what we said this morning the purpose was? To glorify God. See, I'm to use any gift that God has given me and I'm to use it for the glory of God. It's not about anything of myself. It's not about taking a pride in it or boasting in ourselves but to give God to reflect all the glory and all the praise to Him. If we go throughout our Bible, we see many individuals who fell because of their pride. I think about King Nebuchadnezzar and how King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter number 4 had that vision. And in his pride, the Bible tells us that God had to punish him and he was sent out to the field. And he became like a, a wild animal out in the field. The Bible talks about how his hair grew long. His nails grew long. Couldn't take care of himself like he needed to take care of himself. In Daniel chapter number 4, he's eating of the field of the ground and the dew is falling on him and he has no protection or no shelter at all. Why? Because God was trying to get his attention because of the fact that his heart was prideful. And the Bible says at the end of that chapter that he deals with it and he, and he does what he knows he needs to do and he humbles his heart. That's what God is looking for. He's working in spite of the pride of man. He wants our hearts to be humble. Think about the story of Haman. How that Haman has those gallows built, right? 
Why does Haman have the gallows built? Because there's a man named Mordecai who refuses to bow down to him. And as he walks through the gate of the city, to bow down for him and so because he will not bow down for him and his pride and his anger of his heart and his jealousy he forms these gallows and his desire is to hang Mordecai on those gallows but God has a way of working it all out doesn't he because later those same gallows that Haman had created for the purpose of hanging Mordecai on Haman is hanging on those gallows himself God is able to work in spite of the pride of man in their heart. Think about Pharaoh. Think about how many times in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh was, was told, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused every time, didn't he? His heart was so prideful that he would not let God's people go. And in jealousy and pride, he kept God's people there. And God even had to put him through ten plagues. And even after that last plague, the, the death of the firstborn, when he did allow the Israelites to go, and they came to the Red Sea, they looked behind him, and here's Pharaoh and the Egyptian army still in their pride behind us, trying to overtake us. And then God drowns Pharaoh and his chariots and his army in the waters of the Red Sea, God works in spite of the pride of man. Now there's some verses I want to show you and we'll finish here tonight from James chapter number 4. I know these are going to be very familiar verses to you, but I think they speak to what we're talking about tonight and maybe they'll encourage us tonight. James chapter 4 and verse number 6, the Bible says this, But he gave more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Now listen, when we're living in, when, we're, when we are serving God with a prideful heart, or when we are living with a prideful heart, we're trying to accomplish things in our own strength and we're doing it in a selfish way. God says, I want to accomplish great things through you, but I want you to have a humble heart enough to acknowledge that it's God that's working through you, that he gets all of the glory. Look at verse 10, if you would, in that same chapter. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Now watch this. And he shall lift you up. You are humble and God will lift you up. God is able to work in spite of the pride of man. You say, all right, well, wait a minute. How can we put all of this together at the end and know that God truly worked in Acts chapter 12? How do we know that God worked in all of this? Well, we said that God works through prayer. Remember we said that Peter was rescued, wasn't he? He's safe now. The Bible tells us, and I failed to read it there, and one of the verses he talks about how that he desires that those that had been praying there at the house would go and tell James the good news that he's rescued. And then the Bible tells us he goes to a place. We're not really identified. We're not, we don't really, uh, the Bible doesn't really identify the place that he goes to. But we know Peter's safe. God has rescued Peter. He saw him through. God's working as people are praying. God's working in, in spite of the pride of man, we said. And God's working in spite of the enemies of God. But how do we know? If we come to the end of this chapter, how do we know that God truly worked through all of this? Well, would you look at verse number 24? We'll finish with these last two verses. Notice what it says in verse number 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Now, at the, cha at the start of the chapter, we were introduced to an enemy, weren't we? His name was Herod. We're introduced to that enemy. And it almost seemed like Herod was going to get the victory. But God worked in spite of the enemies of God. In Herod's pride, God punishes him. God works in spite of the pride of man. 
God got the honor. God got the glory. The word of God grew and it multiplied. God's message continues to flourish. God's message continues to multiply. And notice how we finish off this chapter. It talks to us again about Barnabas and Saul. Look at verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. Now watch this. They come back to the city of Antioch. And notice what the Bible says. Notice who the Bible says they take with them. And this is where we'll pick up in chapter number 13 next time we meet together. And took with them John, whose surname was Mark. A lot of times you'll hear him named or referred to as, as John Mark in the Bible. And we're going to find out what steps take place next as Barnabas and Saul go to the city of Antioch and have taken John Mark with them. We'll put that on pause there as we come to the end of the chapter of chapter 12 and move into chapter number 13. But what are some ways that we saw God working tonight? Working through prayer, and then he works in spite of our enemies. He works in spite of the pride of man. Listen, don't let the enemies of God discourage you tonight. Remember, he's in control. He's on the throne. His ways are higher than ours. And do not, let us not allow our pride to defeat us and to take us down. Let's be humble as children of God as we serve him. Father, I thank you for the truths from your word uh, throughout the day today.